Turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. For the month of December, most of you uh, who received the email would have probably already read that uh, December's sermons, both morning and evening, are focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And in the morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1 over the course of today and the next three Lord's Days uh, to see Jesus, the, the man who is God the Son, uh, who in that form is called the Son of Man, a reference to his deity, not to his humanity. And in the evening, uh, we're going to be covering uh, the Songs of the Servant from Isaiah 42 to 53. There are four of them. And those passages cover that message, that whole message and glory of Christ incarnate, of the one who is God who became man and who is called by us the Son of God. Uh, that, is, that phrase, the Son of God, is a reference to his humanity. And I know that sounds strange when we think the Son of Man should reference his humanity. The Son of God should reference his deity. But it's the exact opposite. Because when we look at Christ, the man, we need to see that he is God. And when we consider God becoming a man, we need to understand he truly is a man as well. And that's the mystery that is before us. And so we begin this morning in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Jesus, the eternal word. Let us hear God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it or perceive it. There, God's holy, inerrant, inspired word, may he bring his blessing as we hear it read and proclaimed. Christ incarnate. Uh, we are in that season known as Advent uh, in the Christmas, uh, if you will, in the church calendar. Uh, most people focus uh, in in this time of the year, on the celebrations of Christmas. And, and I dare to say that those who consider it the time and, and the event of the birth of Christ uh, to be fewer and fewer every year, even as Christianity takes more and more of a backseat within the uh, society that we live in. I know most of us are keenly aware Jesus was not born on December 25th. Most of us are keenly aware that uh, this is just a season chosen by the church to celebrate his birth and his incarnation. Uh, problem we have with most of that, and my congregation is familiar with me rehearsing some of that each, each season, is that there's a whole lot of romantic ideology surrounding the birth of Christ that has been uh, established by the church that isn't true. <laughs> And, and we have all of these uh, imaginations that center around it where we're idolizing a baby 
and not so much the Lord of glory. But the event of Christ's incarnation, the event of God the Son becoming a man was something that the world was waiting for from the very point of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. When God cursed the serpent and he promised the seed who would come to destroy the works of Satan. And however many thousands of years that was, we know at least from Abraham's time forward when Abraham was promised that that seed would come from him. We know that they waited another 2,000 years for that event to be accomplished. We're now 2,000 years or so on the other side of it, looking back and seeing and knowing the fullness and the wonder of it. But here in John's Gospel, he brings out the point that most people were struggling with in their day, that this man before them was God. And that's why he begins his gospel with these words about who Jesus is as the eternal word. To declare Jesus is the son of man is to say that the man that we regard as Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. It's a proclamation of his deity. In fact, that was the title Jesus used 95% of the time to define himself. I am the son of man. I am the son of man who has power and authority to forgive your sins. And when he stated that to the group uh, who, who stood around and thought, who does this man think he is that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus said, I am that son of man. I am God. I have that authority. It's who he is. But the whole issue of Christ incarnate is a mystery. Paul writes of it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He states so boldly that the mystery of godliness. Do you want to be a godly person? Do you want to be someone who shows to people that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Do you want to be a person who reflects the glory and image of God in your life? Do you want to be godly? Well, God says there in 1 Timothy 3, 16, the mystery of godliness is this. He, the Son of God, became a man. And embracing and understanding that truth is the first step we take in that pursuit of godliness as his people. We understand this is God who became a man. Charles Hodge uh, wrote this, and Charles Hodge is a, a, an American theologian. He wrote uh, uh, Systematics Theology. Uh, he's one of the early uh, decent Princeton guys. Uh, but he wrote this about Christ incarnate, the unspeakable condescension of God the Son wherein he took into personal and perpetual union with himself a nature that was infinitely lower 
than his divine and became a man. Begins there. You know, this is, this I think is one of the difficult issues of celebrating a child. Because we have this adoring affection for children and we think, oh, how marvelous, how wonderful a child has been born who's going to save us. But we do not step back and understand what has just occurred. The God of everlasting, eternal glory has humbled himself, has indeed, in fact, humiliated himself to take to himself our image. To become a man. There was nothing glorious about Jesus becoming a man as far as who he is as the eternal, majestic, all-glorious God. And that usually that understanding of Christ is missing from many people's thoughts. Especially for what it means for us. But in understanding that this child, even in infancy, that this child was both a man and God. What a thing to consider. And even becoming a man, he remained fully and completely the Son of God. Becoming a man, he did not acquire to himself the sin nature that we acquire when we are are born. He remained pure and true and righteous even from infancy. And those are thoughts that again ought to be great in our minds when we are thinking about Christ incarnate. This is who he is. What does that mean for us? Well, John, in his gospel, writes to us, and that inspiration of the Spirit, he says, Do you know why I have written these things to you? John 20, 31. It is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that you may believe when you look and you consider Jesus... That you know that this is God who has come to you. God incarnate. The Son of God. And that believing He is the Son of God, you may have life in His name. That's the purpose. The one who came is the Son of God. And the reason He came was to save us. From our sins. And his very name that he was given by the Father. This is the the beauty of the uh, accounts in Matthew and Luke. When it comes to who is this child? What is his name? It is the Father who says to both Joseph and Mary. You are to call him Jesus. Do you know why children? Do you know what the name Jesus means? Some of you who maybe. I think we have one in our midst who is named Joseph. There's Joey. Joseph. That is, that is more the English rendition of the Hebrew name 
Uh, sorry, Joseph. I, I got it wrong. I meant Joshua. <laughs> Joshua. Joshua, the, na- the Hebrew name Joshua, uh, is, is what Jesus would have been called in, the, in, in his own hometown. And that name Joshua means this. God saves. God saves. This is who has come. The high, eternal, infinite, unchangeable God has appeared before our eyes in the flesh to save us. And to save us from all our sins. That's marvelous. That's the wonder that captures our hearts. Here in, in these first five verses of John's Gospel, he makes uh, four clear statements about Jesus, about who he is. That he is from eternity. That he was involved in creating all things. That he had a particular a role in the creation of man. And in verse 5, that he comes to creation as a light shining, and he comes into creation to a world that cannot perceive or comprehend who he is. There is a mystery to this. But in setting these before us, and just so you see where we are going, we're told that the Lord wants us to understand that Jesus is the Word who became flesh, who dwelt among us, who, whose glory we beheld so that we might behold the glory of the Father and understand His grace and truth. And that when we are beholding Christ properly, you go down to verse 29. When you are beholding Christ properly, you are beholding the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. This is the glory of Christ incarnate. And what we see as Jesus being the eternal word, the first thing we want to be very clear about, verse 1, is that he is God. You might think that's strange. Most of you, I'm sure, sitting here say, Pastor, I already know that Jesus is God. In fact, I know that he is the second person of the Trinity. He's the God, the Son. My friends, do you know how many people in this world do not know that? Do you know how many religious people in this world would deny that? Or would excuse it away? Or would make Jesus to be less than God? Some sort of demigod or some sort of afterthought of being God or a man who had the presence of God, or a man who was indwelt by God. And there's loads and loads of heresies that are out there that are diminishing the truth of who Jesus is. We all know uh, such sects which uh, in the world they're considered to be part of Christianity, but we don't include them within it ourselves. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, they have 
a very diminished view of Christ, seeing him first as a man and then in some event in his life becoming a God. But the triumph of these words are meant to lay hold of our our own minds the truth of whom we address as Jesus, the truth of who he is. He is God. And the word chosen to present him in his pre-incarnate state, before he became a man, is this word, the Word. (laughs) What a strange way to present Jesus. Why use this word to personify the Son of God prior to him becoming a man? Well, there's a lot of reasons that some speculate, but I think the clearest of them, and it's still a measure of speculation, but it would have resonated most profoundly with the people of Jesus' day. To call him the Word. The Jews would have heard the Old Testament ringing with this truth. And the Word of God came to so-and-so. How many times when you read the Old Testament do you hear that? The Word came. God came to Israel through the prophets, through the kings, through the temple. And He spoke to them. And we we know with fuller understanding that those theophanies, those mystical Uh, appearances of a cloud and a pillar of fire of a pot and a burning torch and of of things happening in a mysterious way of of a man who appeared to Abraham and of a captain who appeared to Joshua all of those things, we call them theophanies all of them were representations of Christ But always it came with that. The word came to so and so. And this would have resonated more profoundly in this day. That the word has come. (laughs) And he writes, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And he chooses that, that word. The Greek word is logos. But he chooses the word to confront the world with their perspective of of how this transcendent God that we struggle to know and understand, how does he engage with us? And in a powerful and mighty way, God, God the Son in particular, speaks to creation. And what we are to know about Christ Jesus, who was born as a man, is to understand that he also is fully God. He has that nature of God. And that's the emphasis that's being brought to us in verse 1. To understand the word is eternal. This one that we acclaim now as Jesus Christ. Do you understand that he was present in the beginning? That he always was. And in that sense, I, I think it's something we have to be careful of. We don't look and consider this season as a celebration of 
his birthday. Maybe in the human sense of it, yes. But in the divine sense, he had no beginning. He always was. In the beginning was the word. He did not come into existence. He was not created. And that sets Christ apart. And he was a distinct person. The word was with God. And that's telling us something about the Godhead. That this very one who comes and who engages and enters into relationship with fallen humanity was one who already enjoyed and experienced a union and fellowship and relationship with God, the Father, with God, the Spirit. Indeed, he is, if you will, the one who sets us in relationship to him, who knows profoundly what it is to walk in unity and love with another person. Because Jesus was with God. God the Father and the Word. Two persons of the Godhead relationally sharing mutual love in the glory of eternal existence. Is your mind saying, I don't comprehend that? Good. (laughs) We can't. That's part of God. But that last statement, to bring it together, the word was God. I want you to understand something about that verb, was. Three times it's mentioned there. Don't always do Greek lessons. But this one is particularly important. It's a Greek... The, uh, a Greek verb that is set in what we call the imperfect indicative. Now, some of you say grammar. Oh. Do you know what that... We think of was, we think of past tense, don't we? Something that happened. Something that was back then. But when you understand the grammar of this word, it's a word that means a constant state. And we could add a few other words to expand it, to bring it into our understanding, but they would have heard it like this. He was, is, and ever will be God. But the way we translate it is, he was God, always and ever. By saying that he was God, we are saying that before Jesus became a man, he was God the Son, Spirit, the being who's a person who within the Godhead had a being that could not be confined, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. God who is all power, all wisdom, all justice, all holiness, all goodness, all truth. He is God in the full sense of that word. And making that declaration, we're not talking about Jesus uh, having that confirmation of Godhood bestowed upon him. It's a declaration of who he is. The uncreated, eternal, co-equal person with the Father. That's who became flesh. And it's meant to stretch our thoughts. And we sit here in awe and wonder, this is who came to save us. This is who came to to bear our image unto death. This is the one who, as 
as our God who laid hold of that responsibility to save us from our sins. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> we talk again as, as, as we would go on in this, this particular gospel and you come to John 3.16 and you know it well, but it's those first three words. God so loved. That's the amazing thing here. This is condescending wonder. It it ought to amaze us. I mean, we can't bring any illustration into comparison that would mark the measure of condescending glory at work here. He humbled himself and became a man. And and we see in verses 2 and 3 that the wonder increases. This is the one who created us. The word that became flesh is also the creator. And Jesus' part as God the Son in creation is expressed in those words. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. It's not just that he sat by and God the Father looked at him and said, What do you think? Should we do this? And he said, Well, if you want to, go ahead. He's the one who said, Through me, create. And we'll do it. Through me, make man in, my, in our image. And this tells us again something very profound about who Jesus is. Is that he is as creator set apart from us. He's holy. He's not like us as God. He's not a created being. Even though he takes the form of a creature, even though he becomes a man, he is the one who has created all that is. He created creation with that purpose that it should all glorify him, as we read in Romans eleven thirty six, that of him and to him and through him are all things to whom what? To whom be the glory forever and ever. And he is the one before whom Adam, before Adam rebelled. He is the one to whom Adam worshipped. However long he worshipped him in purity truth and righteousness. He is the one who now steps into creation in its fallen state. Not in that state he created it. In a state now where deadness, sin, evil, death reign. Don't know about you, but in the odd times when I've tried to make something and create something with my hands. Whenever I've made a glaring and terrible mistake in creating it, what's the first thing you do with it? It's just take a drawing. You're sitting there and you're trying to draw something. Even if you're copying from something else, you're trying to make the drawing. And all of a sudden, the, the, the pen goes streaking across and, and you ruin the picture. What's the first thing you do? You crumple it up. You throw it away. And say That's no good. Again, here's the amazing thing. God didn't do that. As marred as creation had become, 
in the fall of Adam. He did not throw away creation. doesn't need it. Creation is an expression of his glory, but he doesn't become more glorified because of creation. And yet, Christ comes and he steps into creation to seek to restore. Honestly, that's the wonder of John's words here when he sets before us this understanding of who Jesus is, the creator who seeks to restore creation. And he is, as we see thirdly in verses 4 and 5, he is the fountain of life and light. I know we are are all familiar with the words, John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. My friends, think on those words and realize that those words were as true before the fall as they are now after the fall. Jesus is the life and the light of man. He is the one who brought life to Adam. He is the one who showed the light and truth and righteousness at work in Adam's soul that effected that communion with God. He's the one who now comes to restore life and light that were extinguished because of sin. Our souls are dead in sin before God. Can any of you In and of yourself, can any of you seek God? And in your sinfulness, the answer is no. I have no desire in my heart to seek after God. If I saw His glory even a mile away, I would flee from it. I would not be drawn to it. If you doubt that, read Genesis 3. And see the reaction, the response of Adam and Eve when sin laid hold of their souls in that moment that they took from that tree and ate. As the Lord came in the evening to come and to commune with them, where did they go? They went in hiding from God. No life, no light, no desire to be in communion with the one who is the light of the world. Even here, this gospel begins with that great declaration of the need that we still have even more in our sinfulness, the need we have of Christ to come and to bring life back into our souls and to bring forth the light and truth of God's grace that we may be with God. My friends, these words speak to us of that condescending glory of Christ. We are dead in our sins. We abide in the darkness of sins. We have hidden ourselves from God. But Christ, the life, the light of the world, the word who was God, has come and stepped into our darkness to show the light and glory of God. He has come, as verse 5 makes known, He has come into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness could not perceive it. But He came. 
He came knowing it was God's purpose that he should be the one who brings life to the dead and who brings light to those who are in darkness. This is our Lord and Savior. And this is whom we are called to behold even as we think upon the birth of Christ. We're, we're thinking more glorious. Here is God who has come into the world. He's come with that purpose of redeeming his own. Bringing you life and light and truth. Psalm 36 verse 9 declares that with you, that is with Jesus Christ, is the fountain of life. With him and him alone is the fountain of light. And in your light we see light. In Christ we see the way to the Father. In Christ, we comprehend our sinfulness and our need of redemption. In Christ, we see the way by which our sins can be pardoned and we can be accepted by God. In Christ, we see how life can be given to us as he takes away the penalty of our sins, death. In Christ, we see him who is the resurrection, the one who guarantees That we have not just life for the remainder of our time here, but eternal life in Christ. The light shines. That's the glory of the one whom we see. Do you see Jesus? Do you understand why, why God had to come? Because only God is able to deal with the judgment curse, the penalty, the death that we are under. And God, wonderfully and wondrously, has chosen to do. Do you know Jesus? Understand that we're not looking at simply a man. We'll hear about the man tonight. We're looking at God, who has so loved us, and has come to save us.